Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Friday, October 21st, 2022. It was on this day in 1861 that the Battle of Ball's Bluff during the American Civil War ended in disaster for the Union troops with 223 Union men killed to 36 Confederate losses. 226 Union troops were wounded, including a young Oliver Wendell Holmes, freshly graduated from Harvard. He would grow up to be a prolific writer and eventually a Supreme Court Justice, after, of course, surviving the war. It was on this day in 1879 that Thomas Edison lit the first light bulb in Menlo Park, New Jersey. And it was on this day in 1962 that the United States, and one could perhaps say the world, entered into day six of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Today I'd like to share with you homilies I've given over the last couple of weeks, I've noticed a progressive theme in them, and I thought it would be good to put them together, dealing with the whole question of minimalism and the penchant for people, especially Catholics, in prayer to be minimalists. And I would say that even for people of the old traditional style, because in the old traditional Latin Mass, what does the laity do? They do nothing. They sit, they attend, they pray privately, but they don't even say amen when they go to communion. I know, because I've been to a couple of Latin masses in which, in preparing the people to begin, they always make a point to be very clear. You do not say amen at communion time. And so there's a minimal participation of the people. But even in our prayer and even in our worship in the current rite, there's a penchant for minimalism for various reasons. And some of them may be good, at least in terms of history, such as the Irish will say that when it was illegal to be Catholic and to celebrate the Catholic Mass, they would do it in the homes, and they would keep an eye out for any authorities who might have been tipped off that a Catholic Mass was being celebrated. And so the Mass would be done rather quickly to get it done before they are caught, and that practice stuck. And I remember I was in a parish with a lot of old Irish people who more than likely did not live during that time, but it's been ingrained into their expectation, their practice. They like Mass to be quick, short, to the point. And it's a question of minimalism. We even do that perhaps in our prayer, where in many cases we'll say the prayers we learned from memorization, but what about the whole question of prayer? Are we just going through the motions? And so I thought I would share these three homilies from the last three weeks uh, for your enjoyment and your enrichment because I noticed in the themes, as I developed the homilies and as I read those particular Gospels, which are the Gospels of the unjust steward, the ten lepers, and the unjust judge and how he dealt with the persistent widow. And all three of them have to do with going above and beyond the minimum expectation of whether the, what the law requires of us, what our obligations as Catholics require of us, and even in the practice of prayer. So here are those homilies, one right after the other, and I hope you enjoy them and find them enriching and hopefully enlightening. An interesting feature about the, uh, the Gospels is you'll be hard-pressed to find any place in them 
where Jesus gives anyone a guarantee for salvation. Now, some might say, especially our non-denominational Christian friends, that there are a number of times in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, if you believe in the name of the Son of Man, you will be saved. But when you look at the context of the various times in which he says that, you add that context to it. If you believe in the Son of Man, you will be saved when you eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you don't, you have no life within you. If you believe in the name of the Son of Man, you will be saved if you are born from above through water and the Holy Spirit, and so on and so forth. There really is no place where Jesus says, you've made it, you've done well, you're on your way. Now, I'll give you one. Some of you might be thinking of it. There is one occasion in which he actually does that, and that is when he says to the good thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, but like Jesus, the good thief was on death's door. He didn't have much life left to mess it up. But everywhere else, Jesus doesn't give assurances. In one place, even, when someone asks him, are they few in number who are to be saved? Jesus' answer, I won't give you all the, the detail of the answer, but in a nutshell, his answer is, many will try, few will succeed, and you will be left out. Well, thank you, Lord. Try not to be too encouraging here. And he says that to the person who asked the question. And, of course, it's not because he's giving us a hopeless situation. He doesn't want us to descend into hopelessness. But he says so as a motivator. And he knows that once we think we're guaranteed and that we've made it, human nature leads to complacency with the real danger of losing our salvation. And we have examples of that in today's gospel as well. At the very end, Jesus says, After you've done all you have been commanded, say we are unprofitable servants. We are worthless servants. We have only done what we have been obliged to do. We are worthless servants if we have only fulfilled our obligations. Again, thanks, Lord. Try not to be too encouraging here. But hopefully it speaks to us very personally because we are of a faith that has obligations. I like to sometimes refer to obligation as being defined as such. Catholics complain about them before they don't do them anyway. All one has to do is look at the attendance at Mass on holy days of obligation. We don't see people coming to Mass as much as they used to on the holy days of obligation. But what are other obligations? Coming to Mass on Sunday. Going to confession at least once a year during Lent. Days of fasting and abstinence during the season of Lent. And so on and so forth. We have our obligations. But Jesus doesn't want us to be simply doing things simply because there are obligations that we are fulfilling. We're sitting marking time, fulfilling an obligation, checking off a box, we've done this and we've done this. He wants us to do so much more, not motivated by the rules we are commanded to do, but by a desire to truly live that life of faith with the important components that, yes, are obligatory, but hopefully we do out of a desire to do them. And we have many such examples in the Gospels where this is so. One rich young man came to Jesus and said, I have fulfilled all the commandments. And Jesus says, you have one more thing to do. Go sell all you have and give to the poor. To which the apostles said, well, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus says, you'll get it back ten times, hundred times over with persecutions. This to this group of faceless cowards who abandoned him at the first opportunity in the Garden of Gethsemane when things got rough. 
always one more thing to do. And in another place, Jesus says in the same passage in which he says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn and offer them the next. He doesn't stop there, by the way. He goes on. And he says, if someone takes you to court over your coat, give them your shirt as well. If someone presses you into service for one mile, go two miles. Go over and above what's expected, over and above the command, over and above the obligation. And there's where he will see us as those profitable servants who don't simply do what we've been commanded, who don't simply do the very least we can do, but go even beyond that. And we have many such examples which we can apply, that very basic teaching. For example, we're all here on Sunday, as we are obliged to do, to worship God on Sunday or Saturday evenings. But how many of us here would stop coming if the church came out tomorrow and said it was no longer an obligation to go to Mass on Sunday? We already have many Catholics who don't come even when it is an obligation. The largest single denomination in the United States are Catholics. The second largest denomination are the non-practicing Catholics. But even when we come to celebrate here, how do we celebrate? Do we simply sit there, marking time, checking off the box, fulfilling our obligation, checking our watch to make sure the homily isn't too long, noting when the hour is finished and if Mass is going on longer than perhaps it should? Or are we here fully investing ourselves in the celebration, in how we respond, in how we sing? Do you respond as loudly as you hope to hear the priest who celebrates? Do we participate in the singing? And even those who say, well, I don't sing because I don't have much of a voice, great, sing as loudly as you can. Then the rest of us will want to sing if for no other reason to drown you out. And then we will all be singing together, hopefully over and above <clears throat> the musician and even the priest. <clears throat> With regard to our children, there's one thing I like to remind folks, and don't worry, I think you all know this. Parenthood is not a contemplative vocation. It's a missionary one in which you as parents introduce the faith and raise your children in that faith. They learn it for the first time. They grow in it from you. Do you simply pray solemnly while your children are fidgety in the seat? Or you go to the mother's room while they play on the floor while you are attending Mass? Or... As I always like to say, kneelers are there to be stood on, at least by the toddlers. And when they're standing and you're kneeling, their ear is on the same level as your mouth, especially during the Eucharistic prayer, an elongated prayer, which the priest does a lot of the work, but how many whisper in your child's ear when he holds up that host, when he holds up that chalice, Jesus is there. Watch for it. Listen for it. Do we go over and above and above and beyond simply fulfilling an obligation, even in raising our children? Another example we see, especially during the season of Lent, we have our obligations to the practices and observances in Lent, especially the days of fasting and abstinence. And I always like to say, you know, Lent is a, is a tricky time. Every year for a priest, I always like to say, Catholics do one of two things during the season of Lent, and there's really no gray area. It is one or the other. They either make sacrifices or they make excuses. They either show what good Catholics they are or what good lawyers they are. 
Because if they don't know the rules or the obligations or the traditions or the practices, they sure as heck know the exceptions. For example, in the days of fasting, which, by the way, used to be every day during Lent, except for Sunday. Sunday was not a day of fasting. Now we have a grand total of two days in which we fast during Lent. And every year I have someone says, well, Father, I'm under 14 years of age, or I'm over 60. I don't have to fast. To which I make the distinction. It's not that you don't have to fast. It's that you are not under obligation. And there's a difference. Do we do things out of obligation? which we have to have Holy Mommy Church hold our hand and tell us to look both ways before we cross the street? Or because we do it out of an innate sense of the importance of these practices? And after all, why should a 14-year-old or younger need an obligation when they have parents who are hopefully teaching them this practice, raising them in the practice, so that when they are under obligation, they've been trained and formed to participate in these practices with the church? And as for the elders in our midst, we kind of have a presumption, maybe it's an unfair one, but a presumption that our elders have a certain spiritual maturity of having done these things all their lives, that they don't need to be belittled with an obligation to do something that's important and be an example to all of us because they see the importance of these practices that date even before Christianity itself, prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And how many of us, including myself, know people in their 70s, 80s, even 90s, who still fulfill these practices even though they're not under obligation. Another example is from the other great uh, season and feast day during the year, and that is the celebration of Christmas. One of the great holy days of the year and an important day for everybody. It's a very cherished holiday. And it's a day in which we have an obligation to worship, go to Mass, and celebrate the incarnation of Jesus. But when do most Catholics go to Mass at Christmas? They pack the church to the gills at the Christmas Eve Mass. The children's Mass, or the family Mass, however they refer to it, the vigil Mass. And why do they do that? Well, for many people, it's to get it out of the way Get it done because Christmas Day is so busy with family and friends and celebrations of, of Christmas, as we all love to do. But how often do we consider, and perhaps we could this year, consider approaching the Mass in a way that doesn't focus on the obligation, but in the inclusion of the celebration of the Incarnation as an integral and primary part of our celebration of Christmas? Have we ever thought of taking our children, our family, to the Midnight Mass or the or the uh, Mass at night, depending on when it is in a given parish. Not packing the church to get it out of the way at the vigil, but going at a time that's very different, late at night, with the family. There's one family I knew. Every year they went to Mass at the Midnight Mass at Christmas and the Easter vigil every year at Easter with their small children. And I remember seeing uh, the dad walking out of the Midnight Mass with his little son asleep in his arms, having just finished the Midnight Mass. Or, since we all know that the children are getting up bright and early on Christmas Day, have we ever considered this year? This year, when we get up on Christmas Day, we won't open presents right away. Since we're up so bright and early, we'll get up and go to the morning Mass for Christmas. Put Jesus in the front. Put him primarily as the reason we celebrate Christmas. 
and we can open presents when we come home from Mass, after we have breakfast as a family. Even small ways in which we go above and beyond just simply fulfilling obligations, but putting Christ, his commands, but his call first and forefront in how we conduct ourselves as people of faith. We don't want Jesus to, in the end, say we are the unprofitable, worthless servants because we only did what we commanded. We don't want to be those who are simply known as marking time, checking boxes, and fulfilling obligations as the only important way in which we live that faith. But let us find ways in which we can go over and above the call of duty, in a way, the command and the obligation, so that we truly make a part of us inside these practices, values, how we live, how we celebrate, and how we worship. How we raise our children and introduce them to the faith. Even simply how we come and celebrate Mass Sunday after Sunday as we pray together with the priest, sing together as a community of faith. So that we will soon, one day, God willing, be welcomed by Christ who will say we are those profitable, productive servants who are worth something because we've gone over and above the command and the call of simple obligations. Is there any miracle, perhaps more beloved than the story of the ten lepers, in which perhaps since we were children and first learning the story of this particular miracle, the lesson has always been very straightforward and simple. Be sure you say thank you, because that's a good thing. But then as I got a little older and kind of outgrew first grade, where Sister Mary, religion teacher, told us that story, in which the lesson is, be sure you say thank you, because that's a good thing, I began to realize, of course, that the Gospels are somewhat more sophisticated than that. And it's interesting how we always seem to have a rather negative disposition toward the other nine, simply because they didn't say thank you. But there are certain details of the story that, when you read it as an adult, they begin to stand out. And these are details that are not included frivolously in any gospel story. The gospels and really none of the books of the scriptures were put together frivolously. Every detail is there for a reason. And the two that I noticed in today's gospel is Jesus' instruction to the ten lepers. Go, show yourselves to the priests. And the other detail that just comes out of nowhere. This man was a Samaritan. Now with regard to the first one, this is not uncommon. This story is featured in the Gospel of Luke, but in the Gospel of Mark, the first miracle that Mark tells us of Jesus is not the Last Supper, that's in the Gospel, uh, excuse me, the wedding at Cana, that's in the Gospel of John. But the first miracle told of in the Gospel of Mark is a single leper coming to Jesus to be cured. And when Jesus cures him, he gives him the usual instruction, tell no one about this, but... Go, show yourself to the priest. He gives the same instruction to these ten lepers, 
And in doing so, Jesus is reminding them of a point of the Mosaic law with regard to lepers when they are cured of their leprosy. And it's in the book of Leviticus how the community is to deal with people suffering from leprosy. They're to live outside the community. They are to ring a bell whenever they come into the community and declare themselves unclean so that they are to be avoided. But if the leper is cured of his leprosy, he doesn't just jump right back into society. The law of Moses in the book of Leviticus indicates very clearly he is to show himself to the priest who examines the leprosy, verifies the cure, and then they go through a series of rituals and sacrifices for purification, and then the former leper is allowed back into polite society. That's in the Mosaic Law, and this is what Jesus told these lepers to do. Which makes me wonder then, why are we so hard on those other nine? We always think of this story in terms of the one leper that came back to say thank you. But we tend to think negatively of those other nine because they didn't come back and say thank you. And yet, we presume they were doing what Jesus commanded them to do. Because in the case of the other leper in Mark's gospel, the gospel is very clear. He did not go to the priest, but rather told everyone about it in disobedience to Jesus. So there's disobedience to Jesus, and there's no place that says he actually went to the priest. And as the gospel tells us, it was not a help to Jesus' work, it was a hindrance to his work. In this particular case, we're given no detail, but at the same time we're not told that these other nine did not go to the priest. Which brings us to the one who comes back. And the question would be, why didn't he go with the other nine as Jesus instructed him to do? And therein lies the detail that comes out of nowhere. This man was a Samaritan. Now, we're used to referring to Samaritans usually in a very positive way, because after all, we have the parable, the good Samaritan. It perhaps is the first of the parables we ever learned that Jesus told. And that label of good is always attached to the Samaritan But sometimes it might lead us to forget that in the society to whom Jesus preached, the Jewish society to whom he belonged, there was simply no such thing as a good Samaritan. The Jewish people despised Samaritans, and Samaritans in turn despised the Jews. In the Gospel of John, as Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, The woman has some misgivings. Why are you asking me, a Samaritan and a woman, for water? And the Gospel of John goes out of its way to say, recall that Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Jesus, of course, is playing upon that sentiment and telling the story of the Good Samaritan because it would perhaps be a bit uneasy for a Jewish person to accept the fact that a Samaritan is being held up as a good example given the cultural differences between the two groups. And so here Luke goes out of his way to say this man was a Samaritan, and it obviously means something. Not the least of which is Jesus had instructed them to go show themselves to the priest according to the law of Moses... But the Samaritan, because he is a Samaritan, would not have been allowed 
in to see the priest, he would have been excluded. So in other words, the Samaritan had nowhere else to go but back to Jesus to say thank you. Which then brings us to the question of the other nine, because now we don't necessarily think of them negatively because they were doing what Jesus was commanding them to do. And in that, we have not just a single example of gratitude to God for this cure, but two examples of how we respond. The first, they are fulfilling the law of Moses, as Jesus commanded them to do. And because they are a group of nine, it is inevitably done in the context of a community, a group, together observing the law that God had commanded them to observe. On the other, we have the individual putting his own individual investment and individual feelings of gratitude to his gesture toward Jesus. And we're left not with an either-or proposition as the lesson of this miracle, but rather a both-and with regard to how we are called to respond to God's goodness in our lives. We are a community of faith. And as a community, we have our obligations to fulfill. We have the precepts of the law that we must follow. We have the precepts of the church that we read in our catechism and that hopefully we were raised in. One of those precepts is we as a Catholic people have a duty and an obligation to attend Mass and worship God with the community on Sundays and Holy Days. That's a precept of the church. That's a command of keeping holy the Lord's Day. And it's done in the context of a community of faith who come together to worship God in fulfillment of that command. But we are also called to bring that personal investment to the fulfillment of our obligations. If you recall last week, Jesus himself said, and I preached on the fact that when we fulfilled our obligations, we're to call ourselves unprofitable, worthless servants because we've only fulfilled our obligations. With the other leper, the Samaritan, we have that extra added touch we're called to bring as we fulfill the command of Jesus. We're called to bring that personal investment of gratitude, of praise, of love, of a desire to come and worship God, even as we are as a community called to fulfill the precepts of the law and the precepts of our church. This isn't an either-or proposition. It's a both-and proposition. Of course, we have, on the one hand, those who faithfully follow the law, faithfully fulfill our duties and obligations as Catholics. I'll keep it in the specific context of attending Mass on Sunday. But is that all they do? They attend. They're marking time. They're fulfilling the obligation, checking their watch, getting it done, and then, and then moving on. To such people, Jesus might ask the question, is there no one who gives thanks? We're just fulfilling the law, following the precepts, but is there anyone who gives that personal investment of thanks, and how do we do that in the manner in which we worship? Examples I've given before, but we have them all over again in the manner in which we respond, in which we sing, the attentiveness we bring to our worship. 
On the other hand, there are those who don't see the fulfillment of precepts as anything important. We hear them say such things as, well, I don't go to Mass on Sunday. I pray to God alone at home. Well, we certainly hope that they do. But when they do, to such a one, Jesus might answer, why aren't you going with the other nine? Why aren't you doing what I commanded you to do? Why aren't you fulfilling the precepts of the church and the precepts of the law that God has given us? Because they simply see the individual connection and see no point or value or need to gather as a community of faith. And so in this particular miracle, first and foremost perhaps, let's give those other nine a break. We've dumped on them long enough with a lesson that is very simplistic from the time we were children of be sure you say thank you because that's a good thing. But bearing in mind the sophisticated nature of these Gospels written by master storytellers, master authors, master theologians inspired by the Holy Spirit, we know things aren't quite as simple as that except maybe in teaching your children to be sure they say thank you because that's a good thing. But rather let's seek out those who don't feel the need or the value in fulfilling the law and the precepts, inviting them to return back to worship as a community of faith in fulfillment of God's command. But also, look at how we approach our fulfillment of that here. Do we bring that personal investment of praise, gratitude, a desire to worship, a desire to be with the community? Or do we simply go through the motions leaving Jesus to ask, is there anyone who gives thanks? And let us see ourselves in both examples, the nine who fulfilled the law and the one who came back and gave thanks. And as we come together in this Eucharist, which is the Greek word that means thanksgiving, let us truly, in our fulfillment of the law and the precepts of the church, bring that personal investment to our worship, to our praise, to our thanks, and to our presence with one another as we gather to worship and give thanks to Almighty God. In the old classic Hollywood film, How Green Was My Valley, about a Welsh family of coal miners, there's a delightful scene when the youngest son, Hugh, has been chosen to go off to receive formal schooling as opposed to his other brothers and his sister. And in preparation for his exam, he's with the local minister engaging in mathematical exercises. And his father, the coal miner, decides he's going to sit down and, and do some of these as well to see how well his mind works with these mathematical problems. And the mother is simply behind them in the kitchen doing the work in the kitchen, but still within earshot of what's going on. And the minister gives the problem to Hugh and his father. He says, if you have a bucket that contains five gallons of water and you put one gallon of water a minute into the bucket, but there's a hole in that bucket that releases about one-third of a gallon each minute, how many minutes will it take before you fill the bucket? And as the father and Hugh begin to work out the sum, the mother behind goes, ha! Who'd be foolish enough to use a bucket with holes in it? <laughs> to which they try and explain, no, it's a sum. It's an exercise to help strengthen the brain and their logic and their intelligence. He says, ha, fine intelligence it is for someone who puts water in a bucket with holes in it. 
she couldn't get past the bucket with the holes in it to appreciate the mathematical exercise it was. Well, I have to tell you, folks, with this particular parable, I have run into some people who just can't get past the fact that Jesus uses as a comparison to God an unjust judge. And they keep coming back to it, but he, he compares him to an unjust judge. And maybe sometimes that's how some people feel about God when we pray and we feel that God is not hearing us. I think all of us have, have had that experience of times when we pray for something, but it would seem that God is not hearing us. And we ask, it's not fair. We are praying. We're constantly praying. But sometimes we can mistake God hearing and answering our prayers with getting what we are praying for, when we are praying for it, the way we are praying for it. And sometimes that's not always the case. I mean, even in another uh, place in the Bible, in the Gospel, Jesus himself gives us that well-known passage, Ask and you shall receive. But have you ever noticed that he doesn't say you're going to actually receive what you're asking for? Seek and you will find. But he doesn't say you're going to find necessarily what you're looking for. Knock and the door will be opened to you. But he doesn't necessarily say that the door that's opened is necessarily the one that, on which you're knocking. I mean, after all, another film, The Sound of Music. How many have ever seen that film? What's the line that Maria says in there? When the Lord closes a door, somewhere he opens a window. So here you are knocking on a door and God opens a window. You never know how God's going to answer such prayers as that. And even to some dimension, there's a lot of presumption in how God will answer. And it calls to mind... Uh, some of you may remember the, uh, well, now I guess you can call it the old TV show, Touched by an Angel from the late 90s. I didn't really watch that much of it, but there was one episode I did see in which it was about a farm community that was experiencing a serious drought for quite some time, and it was really affecting the economy and the well-being of the people in this town. And there was a man who had been praying for rain for a very long time, but God was never sending the rain. So he decides to make a spectacle of it and formally sue God in court because God is not answering his prayers. And of course, Della Street, her character, comes in as the lawyer representing God and there's this whole, again, big spectacle. And I believe the main character's name was Monica. She comes up as a testimony to, to give testimony for God on the stand. And of course, she's the angel. And as is the case on every episode, when she makes her revelation, there's the great light that shones around her and she gets very weepy and very emotional as she gives her message. But at a certain point, she assures the man. She says, God has heard your prayer for rain. God has answered your prayer. And the answer is no. Well, how often do we think of that? That every now and again we pray for something and God's answer is no. Or we have a great, deal, a great idea of what we want, but God will give us what we need. Sometimes he gives us what we want, but that's not always the case. But in today's gospel, the center is not so much the judge that is corrupt, or even the widow, but her persistence in her prayer. And I often find it rather humorous where the judge says, because this widow keeps bothering me, she might come and do me harm, I'd better give her what she wants just to get rid of the old woman. And Jesus uses that as an example of persistence in prayer, that we should never be discouraged, and we should always be consistent. But not only that, bring an earnestness into our prayer. Is it just simply a recitation of pleasant, poetical uh, prayers that we learned when we were kids? Or do we really bring that emotional investment of truth, of feeling, in the prayers that we 
offer to God. The last couple of weeks in the Gospel and in my homilies, I've talked about rising above minimalism, bringing the, the personal thanksgiving to the fulfillment of our obligations and our duties, going above and beyond simply fulfilling our obligations, which Jesus says, if you're only fulfilling your obligations, it is in fact worthless. And so in addition to praying, we need to be earnest in that prayer, even as we are consistent. Every now and again, someone will come to me and they'll say, well, I, and they'll often confess it as if it were a sin, I'm very angry at God. To which I tell them, well, if anger at God was a sin, then every Old Testament prophet is in hell. Because a lot of their prophecies is calling God out. In fact, the majority of prayers in the Old Testament are lamentations. Some of them are wailing and woe, but others are, Lord, how long are you there? Re- rescue us, O Lord. My favorite among them is, uh, and let's face it, these are a dime a dozen of my favorites, is Jeremiah, whose prayer began with, You duped me, O Lord, and I let myself be duped. We see sometimes great honesty in the prophets and in the other prayers, especially of the Old Testament. And I often ask, have you ever prayed that anger that you feel at God? And sometimes they'll say, oh, no. I mean, it's almost as if one person actually did say, I don't want to get struck by lightning. Have you ever read of anyone being struck by lightning while praying to God? But when you remember God knows what our feelings are, knows our dispositions, knows what we want, knows what our desires are, and knows our needs, how hard is it to simply be honest in our prayer to God? I mean, a number of you here are are married and perhaps have been married for quite some time. I mean, have you ever had the experience where you come home and you say, how was your day today? And the answer is, just fine. Well, it's quite obvious things were not just fine. You know each other well enough. God knows what's inside of us as well. And if we are feeling a kind of anguish or disappointment or anger, even at God, frustration at God, you think God wants to hear another Hail Mary or even an Our Father. These are important prayers, obviously. I'm not knocking these prayers, and they have their place. Even here in the Mass, we have the words we pray together. But also in our personal prayer, do we let that out? Do we let God know how it is we feel, what it is we desire? But always keeping that balance, that sometimes the answer will be no. But always being open that God will give us what we need even if it isn't necessarily what we want. But being consistent and persistent in that prayer. Two examples I always like to give for this are two of our saints in our church's history. One has to do with persistence in prayer, the other not so much. But the first is St. Catherine of Siena, who herself was not a widow. She was a religious. She died at the age of 33, and we celebrate her as a stigmatic, a mystic, and a doctor of the church. But she lived at a time in which, for 70 years, the papacy had been moved from Rome to Avignon, France, because of the political pressure put upon the Pope by the French cardinals, and, of course, starting with Philip the Fair, the French king. And after 70 years, many great saints, including Catherine of Siena, were berating the Pope, harassing him, haranguing him, to get the papacy back to Rome, where it belongs, where it's a more universal location for the leadership of the church throughout the world, or at least the church at that, where it extended at that particular time. 
You should read some of the letters that this holy, holy woman wrote to the Pope to get back to Rome. Don't be a boy. Be a man. Get back to Rome. I'm sure a lot of this sounds much more disparaging in Italian or Latin, but she was a firebrand. And ultimately, the Pope acquiesced and moved the papacy back to Rome, which didn't have as much good weather as Avignon does. It's more of a swamp, and within two years, Pope Gregory XI died of malaria, I believe. But it's also said that as the caravan was leaving Avignon, it said the Pope's family threw themselves before the caravan, where, of course, it's further said, Catherine of Siena said, run him over. <laughs> How true that is, I don't know. But it's a great story for a great firebrand of a, of a sister and a great saint determined to get the papacy back to Rome where it belonged. Another saint and another favorite is one who we do see an example of a widow in her prayer to God, and that is Saint Monica, the mother of Saint Augustine, who had strayed so far and so long from the faith, but she was persistent in her tears and her prayers to God, and it is those prayers and tears that Augustine credits with bringing him back to the faith, and he became one of the greatest philosophers and theologians the Church has ever produced, a standard against which theology was measured for hundreds and hundreds of years. But Monica's persistence in her prayer and her tears. I always like to add the caveat, however. How do we know that it was her prayers and tears that brought Augustine back? Well, Augustine tells us so in his confessions. How did he know? Probably because his mother reminded him of it on a regular basis throughout the process. In other words, in addition to her prayers and her tears, she was probably very persistent and consistent in her nagging and harassing and haranguing of her own son. After all, what is the vocation of parents, who never cease to be parents, to raise another generation in the faith so that can in turn be passed on to the next generation? And Monica is a key example of that. And how many parents do just that when they see their children stray from the faith? Praying, yes. But how many say, oh, well, they're adults, they've made their decision, what can, what can I do? But we see in saints like Monica the persistence of being that mother, being that father, and pushing, harassing, haranguing like the widow in today's gospel. And so Jesus wants us to not be discouraged in our prayer when the answer isn't quite as obvious or the way we want it to be. Jesus wants us to press the issue. And even Pope Francis himself tells us, when we pray, be honest in our prayer. Tell God how we feel. Remind God of his promise. Remind God of the hope and faith we have in him. Be honest in that prayer. Be earnest in that prayer. But in deference to today's gospel, be consistent and persistent in that prayer. Always keeping that faith that God will answer it according to his own will. Not always giving us what we want, but we always know he will give us what we need. So let us, in our prayer today, be persistent, but always be people of faith, accepting God's answer to our prayers in the manner and the timing that God sees as best for us, even if it isn't exactly what we are praying for or what we want. Music